Please be advised that the contents in the Grave Tales podcast series is suitable for adults only. You're with Chris Adams and Helen Goltz for the Grave Tales, the series podcast. Today's feature story is from the Grave Tales Queensland's Great Southwest volume, The Box Flat Mine Disaster, The Men of the Mines. On Monday, 31st of July, 1972, Ipswich was awoken by the blast that destroyed the box flat colliery and killed 17 miners. But how did it happen? It happened because there was a fire in the mine, essentially. But this was such a massive explosion that it was heard, some people say 10 kilometres away, others say a couple of miles away, depending on which language you speak these days Mm -hmm. but it was massive it woke up the town of Ipswich which was a reasonably sized place in those days what time are we talking what time of the morning it was 2 47 oh wow so it would have been very quiet everywhere no wonder it sounded so loud it must have been terrifying people think there was an earthquake or something well they did because it was so loud Mm. uh, and so forceful Mm. to have done the damage it did and, and killed those 17 miners you know, it's interesting. I naively didn't think there'd be miners down there working at 2.47am in the morning. Oh, yeah. Most mines work 24-hour rosters. Mm. Some work not quite as long, but there are often men underground all night. You can't tell the difference, really. Yeah, that's well, true. <laughs> um, so <laughs> yeah. it's dark down there whether you're there at midday or midnight. Mm. So what happened? Essentially, there was a fire in one of the shafts of the mine. It was rather small on the Sunday night when it was first noticed around about three or four feet square in area. The next time the fire was seen by a group of people who went down to inspect it later that evening, it was a raging monster. Mm. Uh, They returned to the surface after a minor Pat Farrell advised that there was smoke uh, coming down an intake tunnel and it would be wise to get the men out. They got the men out at that point in time, but they still had to try and combat this fire. What it was probably caused by was something called recirculation. What's that? Well, recirculation, a mining term, is given to a situation where air passes through the same part of a mine more than once. Right, okay. In other words, it has the capacity to build up its content of Uh, methane and and dangerous gases, coal gases and so forth. And how does that even happen? Because I would have thought with the fans and everything down there and the circulation processes, everything would just do a big circle. Well, and there's another bizarre thing that happened, and that was that the fans that clears this gas out of a mine had been turned off for 11 hours for some sort of maintenance, I presume. So that allowed this gas to build up because the fan wasn't there to push it out. Right. And so later that night, another team went down with the idea of trying to starve the fire of oxygen. At this point, it was really an inferno. In fact, in the inquiry later on, one of the men said, we actually were in retreat from the fire rather than advancing on it. And so this party of men was sent down to try and stop the Mm. fire getting oxygen. So to reduce it, put it out, etc. Yeah. Uh, While they were down there, this terrible explosion occurred. Mm. Two forty-seven in the morning. Mm. There were fourteen men downstairs who were killed. There were three who were killed right near the surface, and one man died from his injuries a couple of years later. A couple of years later. A couple of years later. Lung-related, was it? I don't know. Um, I I did read something of his injuries, and I think it was to do with massive injuries to his chest and to his his hips and that area. Horrendous. These men were in the pit and they couldn't be got at. And so the decision was made to abandon any hope of there being life down there and they were sealed in the mine. 
as their grave. As their tomb. It would take an enormous amount of mindfulness to get around that, to not be able to get the body back and to, to bury your loved one where you want to. I'd struggle with that. Yeah, well, there's a memorial outside the mine still to this day, oh. closed as it is, closed, I think, in, in the mid-'80s, to the men who entombed there. And you can visit it. You can go and see it. We did, didn't we? From the outside, yeah. yeah clearly can't get into the mine. No. The day after the tragedy, which was the 1st of August in 1972, 150 colleagues gathered, and it must have been a bizarre situation. Here you had these men gathered with five ministers of religion giving a funeral service, a Mm. burial service for these men, Mm. while the bulldozers were working in the background, filling in the the mine. So it didn't continue operating, obviously, after that. No, not that part of it, didn't, no. And so the dust, the bulldozers, you know, sort of wafting over the top Mm. of these people at the funeral service. Some interesting photos in our book, or just Google online. Some of the photos are amazing when you see this cloud of smoke. It's so foreboding. Yeah, it is. It it was just a shocking, shocking situation, which really affected the people of Ipswich Mm -hmm. because so many miners worked there. Mm -hmm. Ipswich was a town of miners. Mm -hmm. And so everybody either knew somebody or knew of somebody who was involved because of this tragedy. In fact, one of the people who did have relatives in there, went on to be, for many, many years, the General Secretary of the Mining Union, Andrew Vickers, and we spoke to him about it. Thanks for your time, Andrew. In a close-knit place like Ipswich, what was the effect of this explosion? It shattered the whole of the community. Not only did a lot of people feel it, think it had been an earthquake, but there were many, many miners in Ipswich uh, back then, and nearly everybody in the whole of the city knew somebody who was a coal miner. Yeah, so it was that phenomenon that we get in things like this where everybody knew someone or knew someone who knew someone who was affected by this. Yes, indeed. It was a pretty big city at the time, but I think there were 30 or so mines in the general vicinity and and two and a half or 3,000 coal miners working underground. So there were whole suburbs where the majority of people who lived in them would have been coal miners. And I guess, too, that like so many industries uh, where father was a miner, son is a miner and so on, there were whole families involved. Uh, There were indeed. It was quite normal for sons to follow fathers. It's still pretty much the same thing today, although to a lesser extent. But certainly uh, back in the 70s and preceding that, it was very, very normal. Not just father and son, but brother and brother, cousin, uncle and so on. Yeah. I know from what you were telling me, just in your own family, that was the case. Uh, That was the case. My father was a coal miner. He actually worked at Box Flat prior to becoming the Queensland Secretary. He married a coal miner's daughter and mum had five brothers, all of whom worked in coal mines at one time or another. And you had an uncle who was actually part of the rescue team there. Yeah, my uncle Gordon, mum's brother, he lived three doors up from us. He was in the mines rescue. He didn't work at Box Flat. He worked at Rhonda. And it was actually his team who was underground at the time of the explosion. And the only reason he wasn't there was because his contact phone number was our phone number. As I said, three doors down, we were one of the few houses in Blackstone, the suburb where we lived, which had a telephone. And he hadn't updated his contact details. He would have been underground otherwise when the explosion occurred. Andrew, you've probably heard from your family firsthand the story of it, but when we were doing our research, the time at which it happened, I think the entire city of Ipswich felt it, didn't they? Well, certainly a large proportion of Ipswich did. It was felt up to two miles away, you know, three or four kilometres away. Many people thought it was an earthquake that had hit, but it wasn't. It was box flat blowing up. 
Was there a degree of expectation that this sort of thing could and, and would happen? No. This was the first major explosion in the Queensland coal mining industry for many, many years. So it was hoped that the precautions, the regulations, the laws that have been put in place would have prevented this. Yeah. A set of circumstances which shouldn't have occurred but did occur. The only good thing that came out of it at all was that we've learned from the mistakes that were made. The man who made the decision to leave the bodies in the mine actually lost a relative himself in there. I mean, what a terrible decision to have to face. Yes, the Chief Inspector Roach had, a, I think, a nephew, Johnny Roach. He was in the mine at, at the time. Let me say, it would never have been only his decision. I've been involved in circumstances such as that myself. And it's very much a collective decision led by the chief inspector, but also the mine manager, the mine owners, the union representatives who were there at the time. So it was a collective decision, but a tough one nonetheless. Also bearing in mind, not only did Roach have a relative underground, there were people on the surface participating in that decision who knew many of the men who were underground as well. Yeah, shocking, shocking stuff. As a result of that explosion, what happened within the mining industry? I mean, I know that's a huge question. What were the first things that they realised had to be tackled? One of the first things was the issue of the ventilation fan being off across the weekend and then being restarted. So there was a a regime put in place, as I recall it, of so-called pre-shift inspections. Physical inspections had to take place before the mine was re-ventilated. And that issue of ventilation and what they call recirculation was key in this, wasn't it? It was key in this, and we've learnt a lot more since Box Flat with some other disasters, the Maurer disasters in particular, about what occurs with recirculation, what occurs with the byproducts of spontaneous combustion underground, the release of methane from areas, but also the production of hydrogen from the burning of coal process. So lots more has has been learnt, lots more new laws have been put in place, much better regimes have been put in place. But as witnessed by the tragedy at Grosvenor Mine in central Queensland only in the last week or so, these things can still occur and we need to be constantly and ever vigilant about what is going on in our mines. Was there anger in the town in Ipswich when this happened, Andrew? Was that the emotion that was expressed? No, not at the time. It was raw shock for such a long period of time. There was some anger later, but not intense anger. The company and the owner of the mine, Mr McQuinn, was particularly well respected both in the community but also by his employees. And I think generally it was put down to and accepted as being a tragic set of circumstances that perhaps could not have been avoided with the knowledge that was available at the time. There was a couple of lucky escapes. Do you know of any others? I know one of the retired miners who was there at the time. Uh, He was at the surface of the mine very close. He tells some terrible, harrowing stories of some of the injuries that some of the men who were close to the surface, actually in the tunnel mouth when the explosion took place. He was lucky to be 10 feet further away from the tunnel mouth, but he lost one of his very good mates in the process. It takes a certain type of person to be able to work in a mine, doesn't it? They had a tour many years ago down Mount Isa Mine, and it was absolutely incredible. It's a city down there. Yeah, and I don't want to be melodramatic about it, but I have to say that a place like Mount Isa, being a metalliferous mine, is very, very different to an underground coal mine where you find the complete absence of light apart from the headlamp on your head. And they're much more confined than effectively big wide open spaces in big metalliferous mines like Mount Isa. They're scary places, mate. I went down one near Howard, near Mirabra. <laughs> uh, 
They are what are colloquially referred to as rat holes. They are tiny, tiny mines. And, wow. and we had to duck to miss the broken bits of wood sticking down from the ceiling. Yeah. That's how small it was. That's right, that's right. A lot of respect for people who go down and oh, do yeah. that job. Appreciate your time. Are we better off today than we were in 1972? Uh, look, much, much better off. We've learned a lot from Box Flat. We've learned a lot from Kyanga. We've learned a lot from the two Maras and we're continuing to learn. Unfortunately, I think the one thing we haven't learned yet or haven't put into place is that in an industry as inherently dangerous as underground coal mining, you not only need good regulation and laws, you need an inspectorate which is vigilant, studious and completely free of political and, and managerial interference that, I'm afraid, is one of the lessons we still haven't learned or at least not put into place. Amazing point, yeah. Right, Andrew, thank you for your time. My pleasure. Andrew Vickers, who was many, many years the General Secretary of the Mining Union, obviously after all that had transpired, there were two inquiries and Andrew spoke about the things that have come out of those inquiries and subsequent inquiries to subsequent mine accidents. Mm. And so obviously, as he said, we're in a better position, but not perfect as yet. Mm. So we know that there's a memorial on the actual site, which you can go and visit and pay your respects. But there are also a couple of miners buried in Ipswich Cemetery. Their ashes are in the columbarium wood, yeah. And then there was one grave at Tallagalla Cemetery for one of the men who was killed there as well. That's still in the Ipswich area, is Yes, it, it is, yeah. yeah. That's yeah. a nice little cemetery. It, it is, yeah. and it's um, quite unusual the way it's laid out. Yeah, very slopey. <laughs> Where your sand shoes. It is. Feature grave. Feature grave of the week. <laughs> <laughs> Today's feature grave is a really unusual one. And if you're a racing car enthusiast, you'll love it. It's from one of Chris's stories and it's in Grave Tales, Sydney, Volume 1. Tell us about it. Right, it's the story of a fellow called Phil Garlick who was a legendary racing car driver and he died accidentally killed at the Maroubra Speedway in 1927. Phil was a hero of the people. Everybody loved him and they flocked from all over Sydney to watch him race, he and the other men who went extremely quickly in very old cars on a quite unsafe track. But on this particular occasion when he was racing, Reginald Gordon, or Phil as people knew him, Garlic, ran off the track, disappeared into the darkness. Mm. It was a nighttime race and he was killed. Mm. He's buried in the South Head General Cemetery, which is in Vaucluse in Sydney, and his headstone, if that's what you call it, is Phil at the wheel. Yeah, it's fabulous. Uh, at the wheel forever, we call the story, and it's a it's it's a carved image of Phil with his name on the side where it would be on the car, his hands on the steering wheel, still going round that track at Maroubra. It's worth yeah. a look. It's worth going to Southhead Cemetery just to see that. There are yeah. other great things there as well, but to see Phil's grave is a bit different. It's not marble, I don't think, but it, it's white. It's white. Yeah, and you can't miss it, can you? No, it really um, stands out, and it's not hard to find because yeah. it's so different to everything else. That's two very different graves for you to check out this week. If you're in the Ipswich area, pay your respects to the men of the Box Flat Mine. And if you're in Sydney, pop into Southhead Cemetery and say good day to Phil. If you've enjoyed today's episode of Grave Tales, please rate, review and subscribe by pressing the Follow Us button. You've been listening to a story from Grave Tales, the series, available in paperback, ebook, and select titles on audiobook, music by Kai Engels. Purchase your copy at gravetales.com.au or from all good bookstores, Booktopia or Amazon. Connect with us on Facebook, Instagram or our website. Check out our YouTube channel as well.